Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 7 at verse 40 and stand for the reading of God's Word. John seven forty through 53. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the city where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Father, that you would feed your people, that you would strengthen us by this word and the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Illumine our minds. Father, that we might understand this word, and in understanding it, that we would live it, that we would be doers of your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we return to this scene in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles is taking place in Jerusalem, and Jesus has just revealed himself as the Messiah and the Holy Spirit as the source of the soul's refreshment. He's made this pronouncement in the temple. He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Something I didn't cover last time was that phrase in verse 38, as the scripture said, there is no particular scripture that has that quote that follows. But we assume Jesus is is sweeping together many scriptures that point to the general idea of what he said here, Uh, such as Psalm 46 verse 4, which says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And Isaiah 58, 11 says this, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places 
and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And then Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so there's an undeniable connection between that outpouring of the Spirit as mentioned in verse 39 and the waters of, refer- of refreshment right, described in this passage. So as I said last time, though the thirst that is assuaged by the Spirit is, is not the thirst of your throat. It's the thirst of your soul. right? It's a spiritual thirst. And only those who have had the Spirit work in them will recognize this thirst. You don't even know you're thirsty until the Spirit reveals your thirstiness. Only they, only the thirsty, will see their poverty of spirit and seek to find refreshment, strength. And that, that we know is only found by faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 39, we read this. But... This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And I don't want to dwell too long on this, but let me say, um, say this. It would be wrong to conclude from this verse that those faithful Jews, those Jews in the Old Testament who believed in the coming Messiah, were completely devoid of the Holy Spirit somehow. Uh, without the Spirit's work in any age, Old Testament, New Testament, old days, ancient days, yesterday, um, there is not life unless the Spirit is there. There is not life unless the Spirit works. Um, and so the, in the Old Testament, those saints were as much in need of regeneration as anyone after Christ's arrival. And so this verse is speaking of the pouring out of the Spirit, not the presence of the Spirit, but it, but it just in a massive pouring out of the Spirit, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Jesus himself says, you remember that Jesus himself says, it's good that I go and leave and depart so that the Spirit may come in his fullness. Right, so he's got. Jesus says, "I got to get out of here because my spirit will come and take things from there." John sixteen seven. I but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus' departure, his glorification, right, his that ascension to his Father's right hand. Um, as it's, you know, his glorification, as it's put in this passage, is the inauguration of the special presence of the Holy Spirit. It is a new era, a new era of a special intensity of presence of the Spirit. We read about the blessings of the Spirit after Christ's departure in John 14, and John 15, John 16. But for now, it's worth pointing out that this verse in John 7 is speaking of the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, Ryle goes a bit further than this. Ryle says um, that it isn't just talking about the day of Pentecost, but that 
it is speaking about the Spirit's work in individuals that would follow the completion of Christ's work. And so he says, look at the apostles. They bumbled about until Jesus dies, and then they go out and set the world on fire, right? And it's a proof of the, that, that special work of the Holy Spirit. You would think that they would be lost without their leader, but the Spirit in his power had come, and it was better for them to have the Spirit than to have Jesus with them which is somewhat mind-boggling. Ryle writes, They both saw and spoke and acted like men grown up, while before the ascension they had been like children. It was the increased light and knowledge and decision that made them such a blessing to the world far more than any miraculous gift. And so, right, whether we confine this, this verse to the day of Pentecost or expand it to the work of the apostles, particularly, I think we're on firm ground. The Spirit's work came crashing in after Christ completed the work of redemption. And the Spirit's work then continues today. So, verse 40. We're back at the scene. Right? We're back at the scene in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus uh, is, is there in that most important place. The people have gathered around him. The Jewish leaders are trying with all their might to take him out by force. And in response to his speaking of salvation that would come to those who believed in him, we're given, again, a glimpse into the reactions his words produce in people. The various and different reactions to his preaching. Some say this, is, this was certainly the prophet. By which they mean the promised prophet like, like Moses, like unto Moses. Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Clearly a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Others were saying something very similar. They weren't saying this is the prophet. They're saying this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Many were anticipating his coming because of Scripture's teaching. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Right? You know the passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So the Jews knew this prophecy of Isaiah, and they they see Jesus come, and they've seen his miracles, they've seen his authority, and they say, well, these, these verses are fulfilled, even that day. Others, on the other hand, were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the, the village where David was? Now, these are the folks who just can't get past the fact that Jesus seems to have come from Nazareth in Galilee. Things for them are just not adding up. They're confused. This isn't the way it's supposed to work, right? These are the, these are the engineers. 
um, does not compute. So many seem to be ignorant of where Christ was actually born, right? And undoubtedly, the Jewish leaders would, would have liked to keep it that way, right? They, they like to refer to Jesus as that Galilean, as that Nazareth boy, right? Six months later, when Jesus is being tried, and Peter is standing looking at the trial and denying his Savior, those who spoke to Peter referred to Jesus as Jesus the Galilean, right? That's, that's what, um, that was the popular phrase for Jesus. These verses make it clear that most of the Jews, on the other hand, actually knew where the Christ would come from, which was Bethlehem. They state it here, Bethlehem would be the, the origin uh, for the promised Messiah, the descendant of David. There was not ignorance on that point. They knew where he'd come from. And then we read this. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. A division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. A division. And so, dear brothers and sisters, this was, as you know, this was Christ's goal. This is why he came. He came so that divisions like that would occur continuously around him and over his name. Jesus had preached this sermon to the people. He said this, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Well, yeah, that's what all the songs are about. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? And, and what does he say? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now, and, and then he gets, you know, the, he goes one step too far, right? Like pastors can do from time to time. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. But what of the peace on earth we, we are all so intent on thinking about at this Christmas season? Right? When the Son of God was born, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we read that many thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately and that Jesus would reign on the physical throne of Israel, bringing a lasting and permanent peace. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went, up, went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Luke 19. In fact, some were so convinced of this that they tried to make Jesus king by force. You remember John 6? So Jesus, perceiving that we're intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. If you listen to modern ecumenical writers and theologians, you begin to think that all Jesus talked about was one thing, peace. You get confused. It's like peace. Yeah, Prince of Peace. That's all that Jesus was, 
was focused on. Ask anybody on the street about the names of Jesus, and many will come up with Prince of Peace, especially this time of year, and especially if they've listened to, to Handel recently. Um, Jesus speaks of the increasing and spreading of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, he says, he, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. And when it is full grown, it is, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And then he says, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And all of the testimony of Scripture about a growing kingdom, right, and a lasting peace wrought by God himself has made us forget about the method which God will bring, through which God will bring peace. Right? We've attempted to use our own methods to usher in peace and unity in the world and in the church. And the results have been theologically disastrous and practically disastrous. Again, Ryle, Ryle says this. He says, thousands of well-meaning persons nowadays are continually crying out for more unity among Christians. To attain this, they are ready to sacrifice almost anything. Right? And to throw overboard even sound doctrine if by so doing they can secure peace. Such people would do well to remember that even gold may be bought too dear and that peace is useless if purchased at the expense of the truth. Did you hear that? Peace is useless if purchased at the expense of truth. Surely they have forgotten the words of Christ, Ryle says, I came not to send peace, but division. Jeremiah lamented the priests of his day who were content with superficial priests. peace. You remember this? They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So if we're fearful of division, that is always the kind of peace that follows. If we're fearful of division, if we don't understand that Jesus said, no, I came to divide, then we'll be fearful of division and what follows will always be a compromised peace. A superficial peace. Ultimately, a peace that is formed by the world's methods and not made by faith in Jesus Christ. The divider, we'll call him. For fear of causing offense, for fear of breaking the peace, many will deny Christ. Right? Fact, fact of the matter is, your faith in Jesus Christ will cause division. Your faith in Jesus Christ will cause division everywhere you go. Right? Jesus said so. Jesus then demonstrated it. Everywhere he preached, we see the crowds have this conversation about him. Some say this, some say this, some say this. Some are opposed, some are with him, some follow, some don't. Some want to kill him, some want to kiss him. Right? It'll be the same for you. You have a dilemma, don't you? This is the, the dilemma of following Christ. As he went, he's going to take you. This is the dilemma of following Christ. Figure out how to keep the peace, compromise your morality a bit, 
mature in your thoughtfulness like a Supreme Court justice. Right? Stay quiet when you have an opportunity to speak of your Savior. Just, you know, maybe fade back. Let the love of the world begin to crowd out your religion. Let the morality of the world and all the deceptive talk of the world about love and joy and contentment make you embarrassed by Scripture's teaching. Or... Or be in the unenviable position of dividing people wherever you go. Until heaven. Until heaven when we will live in luxuriant peace with everybody. The kind of peace you have never ever even had an inkling of a taste of. I've told you this story before, but it was Christmas dinner 1999. Christmas dinner, the year we got married. All the siblings, we go to Sarah's family's home. All the siblings are home, her, her six brothers and sister, and all the cousins, you know, are there, and there's 40 people gathered around the table. And the topic of male headship comes up at the Christmas dinner table. And I had a dilemma. I'm like, okay... They're all opposed. And Sarah's newly married, still leaving her father, still cleaving to me, right? And so I don't even feel like I have her fully with me. It's going to be me against everybody there. And, I, you know, male headship comes up. And I'm like, well, Ephesians 5 says this, and, you know, I'm pulling out Scripture verses, trying to keep to Scripture and not make it personal because the elephant in the room was that Sarah's mother had been ordained as an elder in the CRC church shortly before that. And then somebody just straight up asks, do you think mom's in sin for being an elder? And I'm, I'm, this is the dilemma. I'm like, okay, am I going to be faithful to what I know is written in Scripture? Am I going to be faithful to Christ and set this table on fire by what I say? Or am I going to say, look, let's not talk about this. I just want this to be a peaceful dinner. Can we just, you know, how about the, the Cowboys? That was a great game, wasn't it? And it was a dilemma, and, and I, I was split-minded until I said, yes, I believe it's sin. It's sin based upon the passage I read you, and then it was just like, wow. It was warfare. You believe in slavery? But, but it was so helpful, not just... I mean, I just barely crept into faithfulness there. I did not want to be faithful. It was very difficult. I knew the pain it would cause to my wife, right? That's also the night that we went and lived, the, or barely lived through the night in a negative 20 degrees, in a barn, in a, what a, a mobile, the back of a truck mobile cap. 
It was the coldest night of our lives. Sarah's crying. You know, I'm trying to, I'm reeling from the whole thing, replaying the things I said and what was said to me. And, and she's crying. And we have this little tiny ceramic heater that's supposed to keep us warm. <laughs> oh, man. And... Um, we did have a nice down comforter, though, and that, that helped. But, but, that, but all of you have faced situations like that. And I can tell uh, stories of me being faithful. I can also tell stories of me just totally wimping out, just totally going the opposite direction. And that was sin on my part. Um, Jesus tells us that faithfulness to him will divide. Faithfulness to him is being like him, and everywhere he went, he divided people. We have some crazy idea that wherever Jesus went, that, you know, the lambs and the lions laid down together. But that's not true. On this day, in the temple courts, and many of the days we have already read about in the Gospel of, of John, the results of Jesus' perfect preaching was not the conversion of the masses. The results of his perfect preaching was division. Some believed, some hated him with an intense hatred. Some had ears to hear, others did not have ears to hear. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him. Was it any different for the apostles? If we go and read the lives of the apostles, did they have it any better? Everywhere they went, it was just like crowds being, you know, converted. There weren't any stonings or shipwrecks or, or scourgings by the Jews or, or, you know, riots in towns that the apostles went to, right? It was just peace, peace everywhere. No, it was chaos. It was Chaos ordered perfectly by the Lord. Was it any di different for the early Christians under Roman tyranny? No. It was, it was division. Is it any different now? Right? The trick today in our culture of grumbling and complaining is to keep the division that occurs because of your faith in Jesus Christ and not merely because of your political views. That's the trick today. Right, We can find a thousand reasons to divide politically, but how many of us have faced division from others because we've told them about the love of Jesus Christ? The salvation to only be found in Jesus Christ, right? Because we've, we've pleaded with them, would you commit your life to Christ? And if you don't, you're going to hell. Have we suffered division because of that? Has it been Christ who has led to division and not us in our petty, worldly, undies in a bundle, political angst and anger? Right? Are we more focused on taking our talking points from pundits than from the Word of God? Is... Is Tucker your Messiah? I used to use Rush Limbaugh all the time, but he's dead. And now I have to use Tucker. 
Is Tucker your homeboy? Is he the one that cause, makes you divide with others? Because you mention his talking points and Jesus' talking points for you, which is, you're going to hell unless you believe in me, are far from your lips, never come across your lips. So often we cloak our political views in a little religion so we can fight and divide. Very seldom is it our faith in Christ, our our minds being bound to the word of God, our commitment to never betray our Savior, right? Our, our evangelistic zeal, it's never those things that leads to our division. And that should bother us. Right? This, should be, this should cause us to examine ourselves and our commitments as Christ first, no matter the cost. Are we serving several gods at the same time? Are we worldlings just seeking salvation and creation rather than in the creator? Are we, are we cowards who will keep the peace at any cost? Are we wiser than Jesus who just didn't seem to have the secret of making friends and bringing people together? Building bridges, you know, Jesus, the Bridge builder. Everywhere he went, division, destruction. It occurs to me that division, you know, to fill this out a bit, division can be a sign of Christ's absence. We can get so incensed about personal freedoms that we are simply taking a play card from the, the liberals who live only for this life. Right? But on the other hand, peace can often be a sign of Christ's absence. Peace can simply indicate a lack of faith I outlined previously. We can be pugnacious on the one hand and fight about every inch of this world, and we can be cowards who betray Christ when any possibility of division with anybody could be the result. Right? And we, we have a tendency to bounce between these things. We must be sure that it is our faith in Jesus Christ, our devotion to Christ, our concern to live out our faith and actually love our neighbor that causes the division. It, it will be our love that will divide, even as it was Christ speaking of only that which is positive, right? He's just said, I'm the living water. Believe in me, you'll be saved. I mean, this is all very positive, loving, good stuff. But it, 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 you know, it, it will be speaking of our love that will divide. Verse 45, we then turn now to the events that are taking place at the headquarters of the chief priests and Pharisees. You remember they had sent out some soldiers to arrest Jesus, some officers to seize him. But those officers, because it was not ordained of God, did not, or rather could not seize him. And the Jewish leaders then asked, what, what's going on? And their response um, the response is a is to mention Jesus' authority. 
They say, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They had never seen anybody, they had never heard anybody cause the kind of trouble that caused wherever he spoke. He was always with authority. By what he said, he forced people always to make a choice. He forced people by astonishing things he said about himself, about God, about time and reality, right, to make a decision. And that is still the case today. Right? The Word of God is still a hammer and a fire. The Word of God, which is powerful, always requires a decision to be made. Right? A decision. Rarely does anyone read the Word of God and remain neutral about it. Rarely. Right? The Word of God purports to be an explanation of all of history. Of all of reality. Of all of space and time. It puts forth an explanation of the origin of all things visible and invisible in a personal God. It explains the sinfulness of mankind and how that sinfulness started. It explains all of reality. It speaks of the birth of the Son of God as God's rescue plan for sinful beings. It speaks of death. It speaks of resurrection. It speaks of the final resting place of every consciousness, every soul. It teaches justification not by works, which makes it contrary to every other religion on this planet. It teaches justification by faith in Jesus Christ. It displays the love and wrath of God, both of which are part of his perfection. Everybody comes away from the Word of God, from Jesus Christ Himself, annihilated, undone. One cannot be neutral in the face of Christ's claims, and that was, that was true on that day in Jerusalem, and it's true now as that day in Jerusalem was written in Scripture and has been preached from this pulpit. Same thing's happening. Some of you will go away and think Jesus is a fool. And some of you will go away and say, Jesus, save me. The Pharisees at that point then get personal. They confront the officers and ask them if they have been led astray. They point to themselves and ask, no one of us, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has, has believed in him. Has, has he? And they assume the answer is no. And they think that because the rulers have not gone after him, it was self-evident that he wasn't the Messiah. How could that possibly be the case? If none of the rulers are going after him, he can't be the Messiah. They're pointing to themselves and making these officers feel absurd if they are starting to listen to Jesus. And then these Pharisees, these cruel men, right? they're, they're cruel simply condemn the whole crowd. Right? They say, but this crowd which does not know the law is damned, is accursed. Damn this crowd in their ignorance is basically what they say. These ignorant fools. If they are going after Christ, it's because they are ignorant. It's because they are forsaken of God. In fact, it is 
just the opposite that's true, right? And then, amazingly, along comes Nicodemus. We've already had some interaction with Nicodemus in John's gospel, right? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a Jewish leader. He's one of these elites. And remember, Jesus had told him about his ignorance. That's what Jesus had told Nicodemus about. Jesus expressed surprise to Nicodemus that he was a teacher of Israel, but did not understand the new birth. Remember John 3. Undoubtedly, the Spirit is now working on Nicodemus. I think we receive proof that he believes in chapter 19 of John's gospel when he cares for Jesus' body following the resurrection, following the crucifixion. Here is Nicodemus uh, defending Jesus. He steps forward and speaks to this hostile synod of his colleagues. He says, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? <laughs> Doesn't it? Do you recall that there's something in the law of Moses, you experts in the law? Right? I mean, that's a dangerous thing to say to these priests and Pharisees when they are angry. I mean, they've already sent out troops to seize him. They want him killed. It's clear that they they are trying to kill him. And so it took faith in the face of blind anger for Nicodemus to come to Jesus' defense. And of course, Nicodemus is correct. There is a process, and the Pharisees, by trying to kill Jesus, are foregoing the process. It's as if they are ignorant of the law, but it is worse than that. They know the law, and they don't care what the law says. They are not willing to follow it. They do not want to have God's safeguards for prosecution in place for this fool, Jesus. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. They don't care. They'll have done with Jesus. Forget the law they claim to keep so rigorously. They respond by attacking Nicodemus then personally. You are not also from Galilee, you simpleton, you Galilean. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. The first phrase makes immediate sense. We know what he's saying. What, you know, what are you, a homie who wants to defend your boy? Right? That's essentially what they're saying. The second phrase, though, is a bit more obscure. I think what they're saying is this. Search the Scripture. Right? It's not there. It's implied. Search the Scripture and see. You will find that the Messiah will not come up out of Galilee. And in this, they are right, right? But they are willfully ignorant, I think willfully ignorant of Jesus' actual birthplace. They've denied everything to this point that they've heard about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We're a star to shine in the sky and point out the place, right? We're, We're a report of the slaughter of all the children of Bethlehem to come their way which it would have, they would deny it. 
God had given these men over to their anger and they would not concede any point to this imposter. They were blind guides of the blind and their rage would burn until they got to congratulate the Romans on their crucifixion of this insurrectionist. They would love the Romans for that work. Love the Herodians, right? Working with those who are their their occupiers and enemies. And then the passage ends very abruptly. Everyone went to his home. (laughs) Boom. At that point, everybody goes home. It's not what we expect. Why not send the soldiers out and deal with them? Why, why not send, I mean, they'd be so angry at this point, they would just be saying, you know, officers, go arrest him. He, his days are over. That's what you would expect. Now, here's what Calvin says, this encouraging explanation of this that I found. He writes, now, now follows an astonishing close of the transaction. If anyone take into account what was the reign of the priests at that time, with what rage they were excited, and how vast was their retinue. And on the other hand, if he consider that Christ was unarmed and defenseless, and that there was no body of men to protect him, the conclusion must be that it was all over with him a hundred times. When so formidable a conspiracy is dissolved of its own accord, and when all those men like waves of the sea break themselves by their own violence, Who will not acknowledge that they were scattered by the hand of God? But God always continues to be like himself. And therefore, whenever he pleases, he will bring to nothing at all the efforts of enemies. So that while they have everything in their power and are ready and prepared to execute their design, they will depart without having done their work. And we have often found, now he breaks away and speaks personally, we have often found that whatever contrivances our enemies have made to extinguish the gospel, yet by the amazing kindness of God, it immediately falls powerless to the ground. We've experienced this. That will always be the case. So don't fear division. Do not fear the consequences of confessing Jesus Christ. God controls even your enemies. You may find that the hostility you expected when you remain faithful in a hard situation doesn't, just doesn't come or is suddenly dissolved in God's kindness. Right? But even if it shouldn't, you you will have praise from God. And you should fear God rather than fearing man. Right? You will never be disappointed by obedience to God. Never, you will never be disappointed by faithfulness to God in difficult and divisive circumstances, even in your own household. That will be the case. You must fear God in your own household. You must be faithful in your own household. Right? You must be faithful everywhere, and God will bless you. 